This episode is brought to you by the Innovative Leadership Institute, working with companies that recognize the need to upskill their leaders and transform their organizations. We help executive teams prepare for accelerated uncertainty by creating the foresight needed to stay competitive and transforming organizations to become future-ready. If you'd like to discuss how we can help prepare your organization for tomorrow, please visit InnovativeLeadership.com and click Contact Us. This is Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute, where we help leaders be future ready. Helping us in this mission today is Jacob Morgan, the best-selling author of five books, including his most recent, Leading with Vulnerability, Unlock Your Greatest Superpower to Transform Yourself, Your Team, and Your Organization. We'll be talking about vulnerability and leadership. Jacob, we're really glad you joined us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. So let's talk about vulnerability. It's an interesting topic because for many of us, we were kind of taught not to be vulnerable. Tell us why we should change how we're thinking about this. You shouldn't. And let me explain why. And let me actually give people a little bit of context on this and why this is such an important topic and particularly meaningful and personal topic to me. My parents came from the Republic of Georgia. And for those not familiar with it, it's a tiny, tiny country that used to be occupied. It's part of the former USSR. And that's where my parents grew up. So they were under a communist regime. They were persecuted for being Jews. Now, in that kind of an environment, you're not going to want to be vulnerable. You're not going to want to talk about your emotions or feelings or challenges or struggles, nothing like that. So growing up, I was always taught that nobody cares about your problems. Nobody cares about your emotions or your feelings. You should always try to be number one mentally and physically and just keep everything in. My mom tried to model more of that emotional openness for me. But as a young boy, I grew up watching my dad. And even to this day, whenever I go visit my parents' house, they live 15 minutes away from me here. Uh, the first thing my dad always says to me is, hey, come out in the backyard. And I go out there with him and he's like, hey, how many, how many pull-ups can you do? I'm like, oh God, here we go. Or how many push-ups can you do? Or how many dips can you do? It's always, how do you be tough? How do you just keep getting stronger? So that was my, my model growing up, as you can imagine. No vulnerability, no feelings, no emotions of any kind. The pivotal moment for me came a couple of years ago when I was standing in my bathroom. I was brushing my teeth. This was probably 7.30 in the morning or so. And all of a sudden, I start feeling really weird. And my heart starts beating really quickly. My vision gets blurry. I'm overcome with this feeling of dread and panic. I'm thinking I'm having a heart attack, thinking I'm going to die. Long story short, I end up getting an appointment to go see a doctor. And this was during the height of the pandemic. So it took me a couple of days. And it was also during the holidays. So I went to urgent care. They didn't want to see me because they had a line of COVID patients. And they basically said, are you dying? And I said, I, I don't know. They're like, sir, we're filled. So it took me a couple of days to get to go see a doctor. I go see a doctor. They check my heart. They're like, you know what? You're totally fine, but you might want to go see a different kind of doctor. And she's pointing at her head, you know, intimating I should go see a therapist. And I'm sitting there thinking like, you got to be kidding me. Me? Go see a therapist? Like, have you met my dad? Like, that's not, you know, that's not okay in my household. 
So of course, a couple of days later, I'm sitting talking to a therapist. And after a couple therapy sessions, it became very clear that what had caused these series of panic attacks for me was the very fact that I had committed to write a book about vulnerability, which is something that was very foreign to me. Because my body, my soul, my heart, my brain was like, what are you, crazy? You're like the least vulnerable person in the world. And now you're going to write a 275-page book about vulnerability where you're going to talk about this stuff and explore it in detail? Are you out of your mind? And uh, I had a series of panic attacks. Thankfully, I haven't had that in a little while. But it's a very terrifying and scary experience. From that, I started to realize that not only do we in general struggle with vulnerability, but it's a different way to think about it inside of our organizations. We all know what it feels like to be vulnerable. And we all know what it means to be vulnerable. And in our personal lives with friends, with family members, it kind of makes sense, right? Because you want to have close relationships. You want to have people around you that you can trust. And you can't do that without being vulnerable with them. But then I started to wonder, well, what about inside of our organizations where we have a different dynamic? where we have a little bit more of a hierarchy, where we are dependent on each other to get tasks done, where there's deadlines. Is vulnerability still the same? Like, can we just take it from our personal lives where that dynamic doesn't exist and throw it into our companies? And then I started to wonder, well, what if you're a leader, a current or aspiring leader inside of a company? Now you're responsible for the lives of people. Now you're responsible for the dollars and cents. Can you really just take that same concept of vulnerability and apply it? So I interviewed 100 CEOs, I surveyed 14,000 employees, and even when I wrote my previous book, The Future Leader, the theme of vulnerability came up quite a bit. As I continued to interview CEOs, I realized that they were, and leaders in general, were faced with a pretty big conundrum, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this, I'm sure you've seen this as well. On the one hand, these leaders would say, well, my employees want me to be strong and competent and confident. They want me to be a visionary. They want to know that I can get them out of a tough jam. They want to know that I can come up with new ideas and problems and really, you know, steer the ship. But on the other hand, my employees want me to talk about my personal life, my failures, my mistakes, my challenges, all the things I'm struggling with. So how do I reconcile these two seemingly opposing perspectives? On the one hand, I'm supposed to be this great visionary, strong, confident, competent leader. But on the other side, I'm supposed to talk about all of my weaknesses and challenges. Like, how does that make sense? And what I've come to realize is that vulnerability for leaders is not the same as it is for everybody else. It's just not. And one of the stories that I talk about in the book is from Hollis Harris. He is the former CEO of Continental Airlines. And the airline was struggling for a little while. And in August of 1991, Hollis Harris sends out a memo to his entire workforce of around 40,000 employees, I believe. And he acknowledges that the company is going through a tough time, that he's uncertain of what he should do, right? He's being vulnerable in this memo. And he ends the memo by saying, you should pray for the future of this company. The next day, Hollis Harris was fired. Now, this story was shared to me by Doug Parker, who just retired as the CEO of American Airlines. And he pointed out something very unique about this. And he said, you know what? What Hollis Harris did was vulnerable. He talked about that he didn't know what the future was going to bring, that the airline was struggling, that he didn't see the right path forward. But what he didn't do is he didn't bring leadership to the table. Because if Hollis were Joe in accounting, if he was a junior level employee, and he came to the company with that same message, somebody probably would have said, hey, why don't, why don't I take you out to lunch? It seems like you might be having a bad day. Take the rest of the day off. Come back tomorrow. When you're the leader of a company and you do this, or the leader of a team or a function, you cause chaos and panic, and pandemonium. So ironically, your question was, why should we be vulnerable? 
my answer to that is you should not be vulnerable inside your organizations. You should lead with vulnerability. The key difference there is that leading with vulnerability means you bring together leadership and vulnerability, competence and connection. So to give you just a very simple, practical example, let's say I work for you and I show up to work one day, you gave me a project and I came to you and I said, you know what? I'm really sorry. I made a mistake. I screwed something up. That's vulnerable, right? We talk about that in the context of organizations. You should be able to talk about your mistakes. Leading with vulnerability would take that same scenario. And I would say, you know what? I'm really sorry. I screwed up this project. Here's what I learned from the mistake that I made. Here's what I'm going to do going forward to make sure that mistake never happens again. That is leading with vulnerability because I'm not just being vulnerable, but I'm adding the leadership piece to it. So I do not advocate simply for being vulnerable all the time because what's going to happen is your leaders, your peers, and everyone around you at a certain point is going to say, look, you keep talking about your challenges, your struggles, your failures, your mistakes. Why are you in this role? You're not demonstrating the level of competence, the level of leadership that's required for you to be in the position that you're in. So that's from a high level why leading with vulnerability, I think, is the right approach as opposed to just being vulnerable inside of organizations, especially if you're a leader. One of the things we talk about is leaders can't know everything. Correct. So we have to ask for assistance. And I will often say, and this is a learned behavior, I have a point of view, but I want to hear what others say first. Yes. So it's not I'm clueless waiting for you to tell me what to do, which can appear when leaders are soliciting input. And especially as a consultant, what I hear is you consultants always just wait for us to tell you the answers. Often we actually have answers and we are trying to get buy-in. And so there is an interesting balance between asking for input and appearing as if I'm empty-headed or I don't have confidence in what I'm doing versus we have a sticky problem, we need everyone's input, and then we will collectively synthesize it, but not abdicating control. Yeah. And the reason why you need both is because let's say, for example, again, we're looking at these two variables, these two attributes of leadership and vulnerability. Let's say you're only really good at the vulnerability piece. And I worked for you. And somebody came over to me and they asked me what I thought about you as a leader. And I would say, well, you know, um, we really connect with each other. She's a great person on a human level. We're just in sync. You know, she's a great person, but I'm not really sure she's the right leader for this job because I'm not seeing that level of competence. Like, I'm, I'm not sure she's the right leader, but she's a great person. Similarly, the flip side of it, let's say you're really good at the leadership piece. I might say, well, you are so great at closing deals, bringing in business, picking the direction of the company. You're amazing as a leader, but I have a hard time connecting with you as a person. I have a hard time feeling engaged and motivated and inspired by you as a leader. So you can see that you need both of those things. If you're only good at competence, people are going to think of you as a robot. If you're only practicing vulnerability, people are going to think of you as incompetent. So you need to bring together both of these things. Now, interestingly enough, we surveyed 14,000 employees and we asked them, what is the number one reason why you are not comfortable being vulnerable at work? And by far the number one response was, I don't want to be perceived as being weak or incompetent. Why do people view vulnerability as being weak and incompetent? Because we don't add the leadership piece. Of course, if you show up to work and you only talk about the mistakes, the failures, the challenges, the struggles, yes, over time, people will view you as weak and incompetent. 
But if you demonstrate the leadership piece, what you learned, how you're getting better, what you're trying to do to improve, you eliminate that element of being viewed as weak and incompetent because you're demonstrating that level of competence. Uh, one of the CEOs I interviewed, Steve Bilt, he's the CEO of uh, Smile Brands, 7,500 person dental company. And he, he gave me this analogy and he said, if you are in sixth grade and you keep showing up to sixth grade asking about fourth grade math, eventually your teachers and the other students in the class are going to say, hey, um, I'm not sure if you know, but this is sixth grade. If you're asking about fourth grade math, maybe you should go back down to fourth grade. However, if that same situation occurs and you're asking about fourth grade math in sixth grade, and now you're saying, well, you know what? Now I have a coach. I have a tutor that I'm going to be working with after school. I'm going to be staying after school extra to talk to the teacher to get help. Instead of just doing 10 of the homework problems each time, I'm going to do 20 to try to get better. You're demonstrating the leadership. You're demonstrating the competence. So you won't have that same perception of, oh, Jacob doesn't know what he's doing. He's just asking about fourth grade math. Instead, it's going to be Jacob might be a little bit behind, but he's clearly demonstrating that he's trying to close the gap. Look at all of the things that Jacob is doing and trying to get better as a leader. And so that is the important piece. And we see this all the time inside of organizations, especially if you take on a new role or if you're a leader for the first time. Because one of the questions that a lot of people ask me is, does this mean that if I'm in a new role or I'm a first-time leader that I can't be vulnerable? And the answer to that is no, that's not what it means at all. But if you're a first-time leader, there's a difference between showing up to work and saying, hey, everyone, I'm a first-time leader. I'm new here. I'm going to just figure things out. I don't really know what I'm doing, but, you know, yay, like, go team. Like, we'll figure it out. What kind of an approach is that? Instead, it's far better to say, hey, everyone, I understand and acknowledge that I'm a first-time leader. To try to be the best leader that I can possibly be, I'm working with a leadership coach who's going to help me. I want your feedback. You tell me what I can do to be better. Here, I don't know, some courses that I'm taking, some books that I'm reading. Like I'm investing to try to become the best leader that I can be for you. That is vulnerable and there's leadership as opposed to, hey, it's my first time. I don't know what I'm doing. Hopefully we'll just figure it out. Do you find that what's required as far as confidence and competence is different when we are supervising different levels. And by that, I mean, often people junior in the organization seem to look to their boss and expect expertise. At the more senior levels, there's an acknowledgement that we don't know everything. And there's almost an increased expectation of vulnerability linked to desire to collaborate, not just vulnerable to be vulnerable, but hey, Jacob, you know more about this than I do. Let's bring our skills together. Again, being leaderly and acknowledging I don't have all the answers. Interestingly enough, I mentioned we surveyed these 14,000 employees and we looked kind of cross-functionally at different seniority levels. And what we found is that the more senior you become inside of an organization, the less likely you are to acknowledge your failures and shortcomings and show a willingness to be emotionally vulnerable. And this is going from manager to mid-level manager to senior executive. And the drop-off is rather significant. So again, the more senior you become, the less likely you are to show a willingness to be emotionally vulnerable and the less likely you are to acknowledge your failures and your shortcomings. And on the one hand, you could see why this makes sense, right? Because the more senior you become, the stereotype is, well, you're you know, the senior manager, you're an executive. Why should I acknowledge my mistakes and failures? Like, look at the position that I have achieved. Clearly, I got to this position because I know what I'm doing, and you don't. 
And so we see that a lot inside of organizations where the more senior you become, the more vulnerability starts to plummet. And this is actually a little bit of a scary thing. And I think one of the important trends that this book will try to reverse over time, because it's not to say that the more senior you become, the more vulnerable you should be. I think vulnerability should be accepted across the board. But even when we surveyed employees and we asked them, inside of your company, is vulnerability perceived as a strength or a weakness? We had something like 34% of employees say that they didn't even know if vulnerability is perceived as a strength or a weakness. That's more than a third of employees inside of organizations who don't know how vulnerability is going to be received. And so if you don't know how it's going to be received, you're not going to do it. So there is a huge gap in terms of what we're seeing inside of organizations when it comes to vulnerability. Which seems dire. Yeah. If I am unwilling or unable or just blind to my own shortcomings, that presents a significant risk for the organization. Yeah, it's huge. When we did the survey and I teamed up with DDI on this as part of their leadership forecast that they do every year, one of the things that we looked at are these 13 attributes of highly successful leaders. And the 13 attributes were, we kind of split them up into what you could call more like traditional leadership behaviors and emerging leadership behaviors. Traditional leadership behaviors are things like maintaining trust and confidentiality, sharing your thoughts and rationale for a decision, like things that have pretty much been standard in the leadership realm for many, many, many decades. The emerging attributes were things like acknowledging your failures and shortcomings, talking about vulnerability, inquiring about somebody else's well-being, you know, those types of things. Again, what we found is that the more senior you become, starting from the manager level, the more you practice these kind of traditional leadership attributes and behaviors, and the more these emerging ones start to go down. And when we look at all of just the attributes as a whole, there was 13 of them, the two that scored at the very bottom were showing a willingness to be emotionally vulnerable and genuinely acknowledging failures and shortcomings. And the one right above that, and third from last, was inquiring and cares about my well-being. And so really what that shows us is that in general, inside of organizations, we're very focused on the traditional aspects of leadership. You're keeping information confidential. You're explaining why you're doing something. You recognize the success of somebody. You give opportunities for growth. Like the traditional things we're much more comfortable with and pretty good at, but a lot of these human vulnerable people first attributes are things that we're really, really struggling just across the board inside of organizations, not even just in leadership. That's curious to me because I think of the Gallup Q12, and we've now been using this for over a decade, maybe two, and cares about my well-being is one of the 12 questions or some variation of that. So I'm surprised that that's something that leaders are still not embracing because If I ask you, Jacob, like, how did that therapy session go? And what did you get out of it? I don't have to be vulnerable at all. I just have to act like I care how you did. Yep. Now, let's hope that I'm acting from genuine care. But why do you think we are not good at that one? Well, you kind of answered the question a little bit there. And there's a difference between being genuine versus just asking. To give you kind of another classic example, right? If you're asking somebody for help, You can ask in a way that's vulnerable and you can ask in a way that's not vulnerable. So I can come to you and I could say, hey, can you help me out with this really quick? And it's, you know, it's it's a general request or I could even do it more like a demand and I could say, hey, can you do this for me, please? I'm asking you for help. It's a little bit more of a directive than anything or kind of the vulnerable way that you can ask is, 
hey, you know what? I'm really behind on this. I'm kind of struggling to meet my deadline. Can you please do me a favor? Can you help me out with this? I would really appreciate it. That's more kind of a genuine way and a vulnerable way to ask for help. We in general as human beings are pretty good at knowing when somebody is being genuine versus when they're checking off the box. When somebody's just saying, hey, how's it going? They're like, well, you're kind of asking me how I'm doing, but I really don't believe that you care. And that's why oftentimes when people say, hey, how's it going? What do we always say? Good. Fine. It's great, right? That doesn't seem like a genuine, authentic, caring conversation. You know, if my wife asks me, hey, how's your day going? I know that she cares and I'm not going to say good. I'm going to say, well, you know, it was kind of a long day or it was great. You know, I closed the deal or it was stressful. Like I'm going to be genuine back with her. And I think this is one of the things that we struggle with inside of our organizations is to come from that genuine place. And that does require vulnerability. So we always assume that vulnerability has to deal with something negative. It always has to deal with talking about a mistake or a failure or a challenge. But there are a lot of things that can make us feel vulnerable. Giving a compliment can be vulnerable. Receiving a compliment can be vulnerable. Listening to somebody can be vulnerable. I mean, one of the things that I struggle with is even on that positive side, right? If somebody gives me a compliment, if they liked a speech or a book, I have a hard time showing authentic, vulnerable appreciation. Somebody says, hey, you know, I really like your book or your talk. And I say, oh, great, thanks. I have a hard time saying, oh, thank you so much. That really means so much to me. I appreciate that. Same thing when it comes to compliments. I have a hard time giving genuine compliments. I have a hard time saying, hey, you know what? I really wouldn't have been able to do this without you. Your work means so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's always just kind of like, hey, thanks. And I think the other people know that it doesn't have that same level of, of genuineness behind it. Jacob, why is it hard for you to give a compliment? That's curious to me. That's a good question. I mean, for me, because it's vulnerable, right? For me, that is a sign of being vulnerable and it's just a hard thing for me to do. Vulnerability in general is this idea of doing or saying something that exposes you to the potential of emotional harm. And so for me, and again, this is probably partially how I was raised and how I grew up, but I was always taught that you're not supposed to do that that you shouldn't genuinely let people know how you're feeling because they might look at you and say, oh, wow, that really meant a lot to Jacob. I wonder if he's kind of an emotional person there. Like, what's going on? But, you know, probably subconsciously, that's what's going on in my mind. So I try very much and I'm trying to get better at it. But my default is always to just be the professional, the business-oriented version of me as opposed to kind of letting more of that human version in. And I'm not the only one that struggles with this. I interviewed a couple of CEOs. One of them was the CEO of Mr. Cooper, Jay Bray, the chairman and CEO of Mr. Cooper Company. They're a home loan service company, around 9,000 employees. And he was telling me that one of the things that he struggles with the most is celebrating. Because he too came from a household where there was no celebration. Like if you had a win, it was kind of like, great, on to the next thing. There was no time to take a step back and say, oh yeah, let's celebrate. You got a win, you got a success, great job. And so he struggles with that. He's not good at it. And you know, when his team gets a win, when his company gets a win, he has a very hard time. It's very vulnerable for him to genuinely take a step back and, and kind of celebrate. So different things make us feel vulnerable. And that's why one of the things I have in the book are 10 vulnerability signs. Those are the common ones that emerged from my CEO conversations, but some of them can be positive and some can be negative. Can you give us some insight into what some of those signs are? Sure. Yeah. These could be different depending on 
who it's for. Uh, and some people who are listening and watching this might even come up with some other signs that maybe they identify with. But I can give you a, a handful of some of the common ones. Asking for help, very common one. Genuinely asking for help, not asking for help in the sense of like giving a directive, which is really an order disguised as an ask for help, but genuinely asking for help. Being in a tough situation. And this is the only one I think from the 10 that doesn't require a direct interaction, but being able to spot when somebody is in a tough situation and knowing that they're vulnerable. So for example, we're at the same company and you are now working for a manager who has a reputation for just being a brutal, tough, bad manager. And you just got put onto that team. Me knowing that that has happened to you and thinking, wow, she must be feeling vulnerable because of the position that she's in, or he might be feeling vulnerable. Like that's a sign of vulnerability. Uh, Showing sincere emotion of any kind is a sign of vulnerability, whether it's good or bad. That's a huge one. Sharing personal information could be something about your family, whether it is something that's going on, a divorce, a health scare, anything like that could be a sign of vulnerability. Now, the important thing to remember with these signs is it doesn't always mean that the other person is vulnerable, but it's a sign to look out for. It's kind of like if you're driving and if you've ever driven through through a canyon or through any kind of mountains, sometimes they have that sign that says, beware of falling rocks. It doesn't mean that there's rocks literally falling on your head as you speak, but it's one of those things where like, hey, you're kind of going through this area and you should just be on the lookout in case something like that happens. So the same idea with these vulnerability signs. It's sort of like, hey, somebody's asking you for help they might be in a vulnerable spot. So just be a little bit more attuned, be a little bit more empathetic, be a little bit more sensitive to the conversation. Just kind of, you know, keep your feelers out there to try to see if this person is feeling vulnerable. Same thing for talking about risk or uncertainty or listening or sharing a personal challenge or struggle. It's sort of being attuned and saying, well, that person just told me about their kids or their spouse. They might be feeling vulnerable. So these signs are, I think, very important to pay attention to. This seems like a really important point to then say, when someone is vulnerable, there's an expectation that I meet them with corresponding vulnerability, empathy, some emotion other than, yeah, fine. Yes, for sure. Empathy is a big part of that. So one of the people that I interviewed for my book, he has a nickname, Dr. Love. His name was Paul Zak, Dr. Paul Zak. And he did a lot of interesting research on this in terms of vulnerability. He was doing a lot of blood tests and looking at actually what's going on in the body and in the brain when these things are happening, when we're actually vulnerable. His research on this was pretty interesting because what he found is that when you are vulnerable, what starts to happen is you release oxytocin. Mm -hmm. And oxytocin is a happy chemical. It's a good chemical. It's a chemical that creates a lot of connection. What starts to happen is a few different things. Number one, causes a reduction in physiological stress. So meaning people around you become more comfortable. So if you're kind of in a tense spot and you're vulnerable, you release oxytocin, you kind of calm things down a little bit. It reduces a little bit of that physiological stress. The second thing that it does is oxytocin increases the capacity and capability for empathy in the other person. And what that does is it allows the other person to be more connected to you. And even in that situation, even if that person is not able to be vulnerable themselves, it puts them in a position where they can try to help you. So for example, the situation of, uh, you know, I'm asking you for help. If I'm being vulnerable with you and I'm asking you for help, at the very least, 
if you don't say, oh, let me do that for you, let me help you, right? Creating that connection, at the very least, what it'll do is it will allow you to say, you know, maybe I can't help you, but I know somebody who can, let me connect you. So it creates that level of connection, that level of empathy, and it makes the other person want to help you, right? To try to see you succeed, to try to get you to do better. It's very interesting in that regard on how that chemical of oxytocin is triggered, not just in your brain, but in the other person's brain as well. And one of the things that Dr. Zach told me is that this doesn't happen if you're trying to fake it. So the oxytocin does not happen if the other person believes that you're not being genuine. And this might go back to your original question that you were asking me of inquiring about well-being. Simply by asking about my well-being, simply by being vulnerable, doesn't do anything unless I sense and believe that you're actually being vulnerable, unless I can sense the genuineness in there. So if you come to me and you say, hey, I'm really struggling with this, can you help me? I might say, you know, in your mind, you might be thinking, okay, uh, I, I need help with something. But if I don't get the sense that you're actually being vulnerable and you're being genuine, there's no oxytocin happening. I'm not going to feel like I'm inclined and I want to help you because I don't believe that it's a real thing. I don't believe it's a real request that you're actually being vulnerable. So you can't really fake it, right? On a subconscious level, our brains are very good BS indicators for these types of things. So being genuine behind it is very, very important. The other thing that he told me is that even in a virtual setting, because obviously we have a lot of hybrid work that we're talking about, according to Dr. Zach, you get between 50 to 80% of the oxytocin in online environments. So not bad, but if you're going to be vulnerable with somebody, it's not quite the same if you're doing it in person and you can make eye contact and see somebody right in front of you versus if you're looking at somebody 2D on a screen. Early in my career, I learned the nonviolent communication. I think I feel I wish. Mm -hmm. Growing up with a military dad, military intelligence, there wasn't a lot of feeling going on in our house. And also not to diss my dad. This was the era where parents said, if you're going to cry, we'll give you something to cry about. Hey, that's my dad's line. It, it sounds like <laughs> my dad and your dad are friends. They may be. So I learned if you're vulnerable, go be vulnerable someplace else. Exactly. Learning the formula. And it took a lot of practice. Yeah. And learning to say words that weren't too vulnerable. So I feel embarrassed rather than I feel like a moron. Yeah. And this is how vulnerable can I be and still lead? But what was really interesting for me is that point you just made about invoking the desire to help in others and feeling it in myself. I had a very different experience when someone said, hey, I need those financials. Like, yeah, I don't want to do them. Yeah. And I'll kind of dodge the thing that I've been asked to do. My team was recently doing chartering of something. I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And yet one of the team members explained why my participation was helpful, but there was an emotional component to why it's valuable for the team. Yeah, If someone needs me to do something and there's an emotional request, I want to help my team. Yeah, Otherwise, I'm going to dodge stuff I don't like. And I think most of us will dodge stuff we don't like yep. because we've got a whole bunch of other stuff we have to do or we want to do. There's something called the feelings wheel. Uh, and this was created, I believe, by Dr. Gloria Wilcox. I believe she passed away. And I discovered this because when I was going to a couple therapy sessions, the therapist had me go for a week, or maybe it was two weeks, but three times a day, she would have me check in with myself and write down how I'm feeling. What I noticed is that after doing this for a week or two, and you know, then we had another session, and she said, well, let's go through some of the things that you've been writing down. And I would look at the list 
of feelings that I wrote down and they were all, I'll be the same thing. Things are good. I feel fine. I feel mm, a little stressed. She would tell me, she's like, these are not really feelings, right? I mean, maybe stress, but for the most part, saying you're feeling good or fine or you're okay, it seems to me like you don't really know how to tell people how you're feeling. I was like, oh, I see. And so she showed me this thing called the feelings wheel. And she said, now, when you do these check-ins with yourself, I want you to look at this feelings wheel. And I want you to tell me these types of feelings or emotions that you're going through. And these are very different. And the way that the wheel works is that there are these general emotions that are at the very beginning, the inner circle. These are things like sad, disgusted, angry, happy. And then one layer out from that. So it kind of drills down deeper. So if you're feeling happy, you might feel accepted or proud or playful or optimistic. If you're feeling angry, it might be humiliated or I feel bitter or frustrated or distant. And then it kind of goes one level out from that. So if I'm feeling angry and I'm feeling let down, well, I might feel let down because I feel betrayed or I feel resentful or disrespected. I started to get much better at being able to identify emotions and feelings instead of just being able to say, okay. And one of the things that my wife and I do now every night before we go to bed is we lay in bed and we talk about, you know, how is your day? How are you feeling? Sometimes one of us will say good and the other person will say, oh, that's not a feeling. That's not an emotion. And we force ourselves to really dive deeper into how we're actually feeling and how we're doing. And it allows you to feel seen. It allows you to feel heard. It allows you to really kind of connect with yourself and understanding how you're really feeling. Because oftentimes we don't even know. Like I, I, One of the challenges that I think we have not just inside of our organizations, but in general, is we're not really well equipped to identify and talk about the feelings and our emotions. And that's why all the time when somebody says, hey, how's it going? You say, good. How's everything? Fine. You okay? Great. None of these have any meaning, significance, value of any kind. These are just kind of colloquialisms that we use when really all that we're trying to say is hi. Hi, hi right? That's really what we should be saying instead of saying, how's it going? Or how are you feeling? Because most of the time, we're not asking it from a genuine place and we're not giving a genuine response. So if you really just mean to say hi, then just say, hey, and that's it. Be done with it. So the feelings wheel, anybody can Google it. I found it to be a very useful tool personally. And I think a lot of people will get value out of it. You just said something that really sparks a question. That idea that my lack of vulnerability with others isn't because I'm withholding, it's because I'm not being vulnerable with myself. And so let's talk about why it matters to be vulnerable with myself and the idea of leading self so I can lead others. That is a very crucial element. And part of it is, again, being able to identify these emotions and feelings yourself. We know when we feel bad, but oftentimes we might not be able to identify either what's making us feel bad, what was the event that happened, or what's the real emotion that we're feeling. And so sometimes I have this happen with friends too, right? I mean, you have an unpleasant interaction with a friend, maybe somebody shows up two hours late for something that you were hosting, and you just feel angry. Angry is kind of like the superficial emotion that's there. And if you dive deeper, you say, well, I feel let down. I feel humiliated. I feel disrespected. I feel betrayed. I feel resentful. And when you can start to identify these things and then convey those things to somebody else, it kind of drops everyone's guard. 
Like if I talk to a friend of mine and I say, you know what? You showed up late. I am so damn angry with you. That's more of a confrontational feeling in an emotion. It's more of an aggressive feeling in an emotion. But if I were to go to my friend and say, you know what? I feel honestly really betrayed. I feel humiliated. I feel disrespected. That is much more of a vulnerable, deeper feeling where the other person might say, oh, wow, I didn't mean to humiliate you. I didn't mean to disrespect you. And so being able to understand those feelings and emotions is crucial, not just for ourselves, but also because how we communicate it with other people, I think will make a huge, huge difference in the interactions and the relationships that we have. One of the ways that I think that you can practice this is you do the same practice that a therapist gave me, right? Look at the feelings wheel, look at those different emotions that are on the list and check in with yourself on a regular basis or check in with your spouse, your significant other, and try to get better at really pinpointing what those emotions are instead of using generalities like I'm angry or I'm okay. Now, the other important piece of this is being able to have a certain level of self-compassion. So one of the researchers that I interviewed is uh, Dr. Anna Bruck, and she did some really fascinating research on this. One of the themes that we looked at when I interviewed her was the importance of self-compassion for vulnerability. And the reason why this is so important is because if you're vulnerable and things don't go well, it's very tempting to beat yourself up. I have a tendency to do this. I play competitive chess. I play competitive racquetball. And if I make a bad move on a chessboard or if I lose a game of racquetball, my default is to be like, you are such an idiot. How could you do that? You freaking moron. When you do that, or if I'm vulnerable and somebody uses it against me, the default is, well, I'm never going to be vulnerable again. I'm never going to speak up again. I'm never going to show emotion again. When you talk to yourself in that way, it's not a very productive outcome. So what self-compassion does is it allows you to create kind of a safe space, as uh, Dr. Anna Bruck said. It creates a safe place for you to land, where if you make a mistake, if you're vulnerable and it gets used against you, your language is going to be kind of like you're talking to a friend. It's okay. You tried. You learned. You can do better. What did you figure out about this situation? How can you do better next time? And that level of self-compassion, she found that when you have more self-compassion, you are able to be more vulnerable. But if you keep beating yourself up and you're negative and you're angry all the time, you're going to have a hard time being vulnerable because if it doesn't go well, you're just going to punch yourself in the face. The other piece of that then ties to resilience. There's a stat that five minutes of negative thinking creates six hours of physiological negative impact. Yep. So if I am not compassionate with myself, not only will I not be vulnerable, but I put myself in a place of over time being impacted physiologically and becoming ill. Yeah, absolutely. The negative aspect is a scary one, right? Because when you beat yourself up, and it's funny, sometimes if my wife and I ever get in an argument where we're bickering about something, which thankfully is, is happening less and less over the years, but you know, sometimes I can say something stupid and her response to me will be, I know you're saying that because you're actually just not being kind to yourself right now. And she's always right, right? Sometimes the dumb things that I say have nothing to do with her. It's because I'm beating myself up internally. And because I'm doing that, I say something stupid to her. And she knows, right? She's very intuitive. She's very smart in that regard. She's like a little, uh, little Yoda for the Morgan household. So she knows that I did not grow up in a house where vulnerability was commonplace, that it's not first nature to me and I'm trying to work on it. So she knows that if I say something like that, it's really because I'm being mean to myself and then kind of taking it out on other people. So being able to spot that and focus on that positive self-talk for yourself is a critical element, not just for your personal well-being, but also how you lead inside of your corporation. 
as we think then about how leaders develop, we've talked about what is it? Why is it important? What's it look like for you? A little bit, what's it look like for me? Why it matters and the feelings wheel. If leaders are saying, okay, this vulnerability thing may be worth a try, how would they start beyond the feelings wheel? One of the researchers that I interviewed is Elliot Aronson. He used to teach at the University of California, Santa Cruz, which is where I went to school. Uh, Go banana slugs. If any banana slugs are listening, strange mascot, I know. But he came up with this concept called the Pratfall Effect. And the Pratfall Effect is basically this theory which looks at the relationship between vulnerability and making a mistake versus being competent and being good at your job. What he found is that if you have a high level of competence, so you're good at your job, and you make a mistake or you're being vulnerable, what happens is that it adds to your perception of competence. It makes you more likable and your perception is being more competent. You get kind of a a bump, right? It increases. So you're already good at your job and now people are saying, wow, Jacob's good at his job. Oh, he's also human. Like, wow, now he's really good at his job. He's really likable. However, the flip side of that is also true. If you're not good at your job, and you're always vulnerable and talking about your mistakes, what it does is it reinforces your mediocrity. And so this is an important relationship for people to point out because it means that you cannot use vulnerability as a way to justify ongoing poor performance. In other words, there's no substitute for being good at your job. In a work environment, in a business environment, you have to be highly competent. If you're not, your vulnerability will reinforce your mediocrity. However, if you are good at your job, your vulnerability will give you a bump and make you seem more competent and even more likable. And I really wanted to stress this point because we hear and see a lot online of this idea of talk about your mistakes, talk about your failures. And I'm not opposed to that, but it misses a very, very important piece, which again is the leadership, the competence element in there. And so that's a critical point. So getting back to your original theme of where else do you start? I think there are a couple places people can begin. And you let me know if you want me to go through some of these things or not. So there are a few frameworks that I have in the book. One of them is identifying the type of a vulnerable leader you are. Then I have eight attributes of vulnerable leaders. And then I have more kind of specific frameworks like the vulnerability wheel, which helps you decide when you should be vulnerable and when you shouldn't. And then I have this theory of the vulnerability mountain that you could climb. Probably for most people who are listening and watching this, maybe we can do kind of like a a high level. Maybe the eight attributes might be overwhelming. I don't know. What do you think? I'd like to do that. But one thing that's just come to mind is we're living in a time right now where, let's use voters as an example. It's a global issue. Voters seem to be choosing leaders who are less vulnerable and more certain it seems like there is some pendulum swing to, I want a leader who is not vulnerable. They're going to tell me everything's okay and they're going to do it with confidence and reinforce there's this now facade. No, you're right. I think there is a pendulum that's swinging. I'm glad that it's swinging. What we have seen, and this is even broadly beyond vulnerability, is that a lot of the power has shifted. It was swung into the hands of employees inside of organizations. In other words, organizations, leaders used to have all the power inside of a company. They would dictate all the rules, the terms, et cetera. Then pandemic, post-pandemic, the pendulum wildly swung into employees to the point where 
employee, and I would talk to several CEOs and leaders of teams and functions where employees were asking they wanted equity in the company. They wanted to make more money than even their boss's boss wanted to make. And on top of that, they didn't even want to show up to the office. And it became so unrealistic so exaggerated in terms of how much it swung into the hands of employees that it became not sustainable. And then what we started to see, a lot of layoffs start to happen and a little bit of a rebalancing pendulum kind of swinging the other way. And I think that's a good thing. And it's not to say that we shouldn't treat people well, but when you get to a point where it has swung so much in the other direction, it almost felt like people just didn't want to work. And I talked to a lot of CEOs and a lot of thought leaders and authors, most of the time off camera, and they would say, yeah, you know, it feels like people don't want to work. It's just too much has gone in the other direction. And that's why now we're starting to see it swing back in the other direction where people are like, uh-oh, we're going through a lot of layoffs. We're going to be the first people that are going to get laid off. It's going to be the people who have negotiated for these ridiculous salaries, who have negotiated for these insane packages. Those are going to be the first people on the chopping block because a company is going to take a step back and they're going to say, wait a minute, during the pandemic, we had to pay these unreasonable salaries. We could hire three people for what we're paying Jacob. Why is he here? And so now we're starting to see a little bit of a rebalancing and something a little bit more center-based. Now, how this plays as far as vulnerability goes, we absolutely do want leaders that are good at their job. I don't think we want invulnerable leaders. I don't know anybody who's saying, well, I just want to work for a leader who's good at his job that has no human component. But I think now, especially as we're going through a lot of turbulence, we're really starting to put extra emphasis on the good at your job piece. And it kind of ebbs and flows. Like it's hard to say, for example, what percentage of a leader's overall capability should be focused on vulnerability, right? The connection versus how much of it should be focused on competence. Both are important. I think it's sort of like a, a seesaw, right? It kind of ebbs and flows depending on what's going on in the world, what's going on in the organization. I think during the pandemic, it became very clear that the connection piece was on the upper end and the competence piece was on the lower end. Now we're getting post-pandemic. We're going through some tough economic times. Companies are going through layoffs. And so we could easily imagine why the competence piece is starting to become a little bit more important. It doesn't mean one or the other gets completely eliminated. You still absolutely need both. But as far as what that percentage is going to look like, I think it's constantly a dynamic thing. Now let's go back to the eight elements that you recommended. Yes. So there are eight attributes. And I can quickly go over what the eight are. We don't need to do like a, a deep dive into each one, but I can give you kind of a high level of what they are. So there's three for the leadership piece and five for vulnerability. So the three for the leadership piece, number one is competence. Straightforward. You got to be good at your job. No substitute for being good at your job. I don't care how much you're doing these other things. You have to be good at your job. Second is self-confidence. Self-confidence is important because you need to have the belief in yourself that you can grow, that you can do things, that you can succeed. If you don't have that self-confidence, it hurts your overall leadership perception. And next is motivation. Motivation is the drive to actually do better and be better. So for example, if I come to you and I say, I made a mistake, here's what I learned from that mistake, here's what I'm going to do in the future to make sure I don't make that mistake again, motivation is what actually gets me to do that thing that I said I'm going to do. It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. Motivation is what gets you to do it. I'm going to work with a coach. Motivation is what gets you to work with the coach. 
right? So that's important for the leadership piece. It's sort of like put your money where your mouth is. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to actually do it. Then there are five for the vulnerability piece, the connection piece. One is integrity. Integrity is being moral and honest, doing the right thing, how you behave. It's just as easy or it's just as relevant the things that you say yes to as it is the things that you say no to. So integrity is very important. Authenticity. A lot of the times people confuse authenticity and vulnerability, but they're very different. You look at somebody like Jack Welsh, you look at somebody like Steve Ballmer. They were arguably both very authentic leaders. They had no problem cursing you out, throwing a chair or a computer across the table, screaming at you, almost getting into physical altercations with you. They were authentic. They were not vulnerable. Authentic basically means being a single version of you. Next, we have empathy. Empathy, seeing things from somebody else's perspective, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. Self-compassion, which is one of the things that we talked about. Positive self-talk, giving yourself a safe place to land, not beating yourself up. And self-awareness, which is really about understanding your strengths, your weaknesses, and how other people perceive you. So those are the five for the vulnerability piece. And again, we went over the three for the, the leadership piece. Really, the way that you can think about these things is when you bring together these eight attributes, it's really what allows this power of leading with vulnerability to come to fruition. So if you can practice and bring together all of these eight things, it's kind of like um, if anybody's ever seen the Marvel movies like the Avengers, and they all have those different infinity stones, and you bring together those infinity stones and they unlock this massive power, that's what these eight attributes are. You bring them together and it unlocks this massive power, this massive transformative power that you can possess as a leader. So those are what those eight attributes are. In the book, do you talk about, say, I don't have authenticity or I have the negative side that I yell at people, but no empathy. <laughs> so yeah, I'm good at yelling. Do you have recommendations for how do I get better? Yes. So one of the things that I try to do, and this is just not for these attributes, for, for everything in the book, it's filled with the stories and quotes from the CEOs that I interviewed. So you can hear directly from them what they say, their challenges, their struggles, and also has some data points in there too. And it gives action items for each one. It gives you kind of an overview of what these eight attributes are. So yes, I mean, you could probably write a whole book about each one of these attributes, but I tried to do my best to give people something to work with. What other tools are in the book that listeners should be aware of that are a must like, I must get this book because Jacob does this thing in the book and it's unique. There are a few things. Number one is I think the book does a very unique job in terms of bringing together both quantitative and qualitative data. So there's a lot of leadership books that have been written and I'm sure you've read many of them and you're, you probably can relate to this. But one of the challenges that I hear from a lot of people is that a lot of leadership books are frequently written based on maybe one, two, three companies. How many books can we read about? Oh, Microsoft is doing this. Google is doing this. Apple is doing this. Well, okay, but I'm not Google. I'm not Apple. I'm not Microsoft. Who else you got? So one of the things that I try to do by bringing together 100 CEOs across different industries and different geographies is to paint a more complete picture of what is going on in the realm of leadership and why leading with vulnerability is important. The second thing that I try to do, which I think is unique, is to bring in the survey data from the 14,000 employees, right? So trying to back everything up with data. I did this in my previous book too, but people really like hearing directly from the CEOs. And so I have a lot of their direct copied and pasted quotes and contributions and stories. And some of the stories are just 
ridiculously crazy that these CEOs have shared with me. So I'm excited for them to kind of get out in the world. One other framework or one visual that I think is very symbolic is the idea of a mountain. So the cover of the book is a character, somebody who's getting ready to climb this big mountain. And they're kind of looking up at the mountain. It's in the distance. It looks big and scary. What I always tell leaders is you have to build and then climb your own vulnerability mountain. The reason why the mountain is so significant is because if anybody's ever gone hiking or climbing a mountain, you know that the beginning is always easy, right? Setting up base camp, you know, kind of hanging out, we're good at that. But when you start climbing higher up the mountain, sometimes you might get injured, you might fall, you might have to take a step back to kind of reroute to go a different direction. But the higher up the mountain you climb, the more beautiful the vistas become, the more clarity you get, the farther out you can see, the more people you meet on your journey. And the same thing I think is true for leading with vulnerability. The higher up that mountain you climb, the more clarity you get, the more connections you get. So it's a very, very relevant metaphor there. So the best piece of advice for leaders is identify what's the peak for you. What is the big scary thing at that top of that mountain the leading with vulnerability is? And what's at base camp for you? So maybe base camp for you tomorrow is, well, I can talk about what I did over the weekend with my family as a way to try to kind of create connection with people. Maybe what's at the top of that mountain is to talk about a personal challenge or a struggle, right? So Jim Fitterling, the CEO of Dow Chemical, who's one of the CEOs that I interviewed, for him, the peak was coming out as gay to his entire organization, right? He came out as being gay, I think, uh, within the last few years. He was diagnosed with stage four cancer. He was told he was going to die. And he realized that he was not being authentic. He was not being his true self because he was hiding the fact that he was gay from everybody that he was working with. And so that was the peak of his mountain for him. It's like letting everybody know who he is. And he told me at first that he was very scared to do this. He thought he was going to be judged. He thought that people would turn their backs on him, that it wouldn't be received. He was very nervous to do this. And so he started small. He talked to his executive team and his board and then slowly started to share this with everybody and found that everybody opened their arms to him. They were accepting. They were welcoming they were appreciative, they honored him, and it was a very positive experience for him to go through that. So oftentimes, when we think of leading with vulnerability, we assume and imagine the worst case scenario when oftentimes what's far more likely is the best case scenario. So build that vulnerability mountain and start to climb it day by day, week by week, and month by month. You'll make mistakes along the way, You'll probably get pushed down the mountain sometimes. But as the president of Microsoft in North America told me, she said that it's the most important and rewarding thing that any leader can do. What is your vulnerability peak that you're working toward? If you'll be that vulnerable with us. Um, my vulnerability peak is probably more with family, uh, getting better at talking about emotions and feelings with family, specifically with my mom. My dad is super tough. He's, you know, doesn't like to talk about or share anything emotional or physical. Like he was recently sick. He had a terrible cough. And I would say, hey, dad, how's it going? He's like, you just asked me yesterday. All right. That's kind of the response that I get. So trying to create a better relationship and more connection with my dad, I think is kind of the peak for me and creating those better personal relationships and doing a better job at being more vulnerable with, with friends and family. That's kind of the, the peak 
the scary thing for me that I'm trying to do a little bit each day. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. So give us the name of your book again, where people can find more information about you and the book and contact information, LinkedIn. Sure. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Uh, so the book is called Leading with Vulnerability. And uh, it has a little bit of a, a longer subtitle, but the main thing is just leading with vulnerability. And we created a special URL for it. So people can go to leadwithvulnerability.com and then that will link you to a couple places where you can get it like Amazon. You can also just go to your favorite provider, Amazon, Books A Million and type in leading with vulnerability. And the subtitle is unlock your greatest superpower to transform yourself, your team and your organization. My personal website is thefutureorganization.com and my email, jacob at thefutureorganization.com. And then one thing I'll mention, if people do order the book, email me, bonus at thefutureorganization.com because for people who order a hardcover copy specifically, I'm sending them access to five of the CEO interviews that I did. It's with GE, American Airlines, Edward Jones, WW, and BD. So I'll send them the audio and the video interviews so they can see these candid conversations themselves. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure talking with you. This is Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm Maureen Metcalf. Listeners, we hope today's show helps you become more future ready by exploring your vulnerability and amplifying it. Please like us and share us across your podcast platforms. <music>